So we're working through this uh, series looking at the lives of two men and in fact the life of one of those men is pretty much coming to an end, the life of Isaac, moving on to his son Jacob. Uh, Two men, sons, uh, if you like, son and grandson of Abraham. And what we have here is a little, a little cameo, really, a little moment, uh, if you like, a window into family life. Now, I recognize, um, as we come to a little text like this, well, I say a little text, it's quite a long text, really, wasn't it? Uh, it's, whenever we start looking at narrative, we end up dealing with quite long blocks of the Bible because it's telling just that, the narrative of a story. We come to a story which, um, in brief terms, if you didn't manage to follow it clearly, it simply works like this. There is uh, this family scene, uh, the aging father who's losing his sight, probably confined to his bed, being looked after by his family right at the end of his life, and there are two sons, one who is um, a hunter and one who is a stay-at-home kind of guy. And uh, the father is reaching the point in his life of passing on the blessing to the next son. Uh, And um, he goes out, does Esau, to hunt game for his father who loves the food that he makes. That's been the storyline right the way through, if you've been able to follow it, this hunter, uh, Esau, And again and again, his hunting comes up in the story as as he goes out to hunt food for his father. He goes out, and while he's out, the mother, Rebecca, on hearing what is about to happen, blessing being given to, um, to the son, to Esau, the mother jumps in there and hatches a plan for the younger son, Jacob, to receive the blessing by cooking a goat from the field rather than hunting game out in the field, cooking the goat, covering Jacob in the skin, and uh, transferring, if you like, twisting and deceitfully gaining the blessing for Jacob. That really is uh, the story. As we come to it, I recognize a few things. Um, There are two things which I think are crucial and helpful for us to look at today. The first is, it rocks us, doesn't it, a story like this, in two ways. Firstly, because it seems so culturally out of touch with us today. For a start, the idea that we might receive, as the firstborn, the blessing from the Father by going out and getting food and bringing that food back, that is that is so out of touch uh, with where we are today, so we have a, a problem with that. Uh, and then secondly, we have this mishmash of behaviors of different people. We have a little window into this family life, and we have a cameo that says, I think in our way of looking at it, well, what's going on? Who's right? Who's wrong? I want to address those two things, really, and think about those two things because I think they are a fantastic springboard into understanding why this has so much to say to us today. The first thing we see is this idea of, uh, to, to 
gain the, the technical term male primogeniture. That's the phrase that we use, the idea that the blessing of one passes on to the firstborn son. That's a historical perspective. And uh, I'm really thankful that the world that we live in today does not uh, exhibit that particular pattern. But rather there is a sense of uh, unity and consistent value to all of the children. Rather than this idea that the firstborn is uh, the one who is particularly blessed. So before we... And one of the things that I think it's important to face up to that issue with is because I think that for many of us, when we first come to the Bible, and when we look at something like that, that makes us feel uncomfortable because it is different, it seems unfair, it seems wrong, and therefore we fall into the trap of assuming that we must discount the Bible because it is exhibiting a pattern of life which seems wrong. So that, that is completely right that we square up to that issue and we say, what do we do with that particular problem? I want to just stop and say, what we see here, the idea of the passing on of blessing to the firstborn son, is not a unique biblical pattern. It is a widespread, ancient cultural pattern. It's something that happened in general terms. There are a few reasons for it, and those reasons are important for us to get our heads around and understand why it was relevant then and what it might say for us today. The first is this. In a world where the average life expectancy was significantly less than the life expectancy in which we enjoy today, the idea of the firstborn who has survived, therefore, you can't pass on to a firstborn who is dead, can you? But the, the idea that you pass it on to a firstborn who is living and therefore has survived makes sense because there is a sense of security in that. That widespread identity of how do I create security for the long-term future in a world where absolute insecurity was the order of the day. Now, when we think about the idea of uh, what it seems like here is Esau is stating the will, if you like. He's, he's stating the will just ahead of his death. It's the reading of the will. And, and it seems as though uh, Isaac is saying everything goes to Esau and Jacob gets nothing. And that's uncomfortable. But if we think in terms of survival, then it puts on a whole different perspective. Adam Smith, the economist and philosophical thinker, in his book, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, or the Wealth of Nations, as it's commonly written, spoke about the idea of primogeniture in Europe. And he says this, When land was considered as the means, not of subsistence merely, 
but of power and protection, it was thought better that it should descend undivided to one. In those disorderly times, every great landlord was a sort of petty prince. You see what he's saying? Here's my security for the family that I have built up. This little family in a world where you're surrounded by other family, tribal, clan-like systems. Here's our security. How do we secure for the long term? How do we care for the long term? We care for the long term with this idea of not, don't divide it. Because if you divide, you, you're easily conquered, quite simply. So don't divide it. Give it with security. And with that security comes responsibility. So in the giving of that comes the responsibility of protection and care and wide security for the ongoing wider family. You see what's happening? You see the, the logic. It might be something that seems wrong to us today, but what we're seeing is the idea that the Bible is fitting into this ongoing cultural pattern of providing security and protection uh, for, the, for the family which is growing. And so, if we think about it, as God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless your family and your family is going to grow and, uh, and, and the, the number is going to be on, beyond the stars in the skies, the promise that he made. He says to Abraham, that's how it's going to be. Then pass it on and as those families grow and grow, there is not the expectation that the second and third, fourth sons and daughters are going to move away. No, they're going to they're going to stay within that wider family community and they're going to have children and they're going to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and there is going to be this growing, wide perspective of people. Don't break up the land. Don't split it up. So although we initially come to a text like this and it seems uncomfortable to us, we, we, we might understand there is a little bit more going on. There is the, the issue at root about long-term, well, well, I'm going to use the word ahead of time, long-term being saved, being secure, being safe, being protected. How do I live in a place which is long-term of protection to me in this land? And so, culturally, that's why it's done. And there is now this moment where, logically, Isaac has this step, which would have been common for all of those aging men of that particular time, to pass on that blessing and responsibility to the next oldest son, Esau. The outcome isn't quite what it should be against that pattern, is it? In fact, when we look into this, it is a picture, to be honest, of a chaotic, 
disrupted, challenged, relationally broken family. That's the reality. That's what we see. We actually see a mess. And our first response uh, as ordinary human beings is to look at that and I think and to say, well, who's right and who's wrong? Doesn't that, doesn't that just speak so quickly of our, our own challenges of relationship? Doesn't it speak so quickly of the problems that we have in our existence today? Things go wrong. People say things. People do things. And our first decision is, where do we apportion the blame for what's gone wrong? At the same time, when we look at it from that point of view, I think we look at, we look at just, it's, okay, it's happened, it's happened in tents in the middle of the desert with a guy who's gone out with a bow and arrow or a sling to go and hunt for game. I, I know that it's distant culturally from us today, but the behaviors of people are not distant from our own behaviors today, are they? They are absolutely consistent with the kind of challenges of relationship that we see today. Nothing has changed in the world. We continue to have these challenges of relationship. Isaac and Rebecca. What we saw when we first encountered this little picture of Isaac and Rebecca was, was if you like, the little ideal this moment of kind of amazing story, an incredible commitment. But verse 28 of chapter 25 gives us a hint of the problem. And, and, and this verse really is the, it's the, it's the banner, really, over which the whole of this chapter sits. Chapter 25, verse 28 says this. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Isn't it amazing? I, I, isn't it just great when you, when you have the opportunity in the Bible to just stop a minute and say, let's go back. You know, I'm reading this and there's something in the back of my mind. I, 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 as I was preparing this, I was thinking, I know that there's, where is that verse? And you can, because there's a verse that's the springboard. There's, if you like, the pre-statement. The narrator throws in a little seed. And the little seed that he throws in in chapter 25 grows up in chapter 27. And the chaos of relationship and the problem of favoritism comes home to roost. Isn't it astounding? Now, in one sense, in one sense, at least one of the things that the Bible does for us is it puts little, little pictures up for us just to look at. And to stop and to think and say, you know, sometimes it's easier to look over there at a picture than look in the mirror. 
because looking in the mirror is an uncomfortable experience, but if I only look at the picture and never use the picture as a springboard to look in the mirror, I've got a problem. Because the picture is a presentation to say to us, in a sense, don't live like this. You know, the problem is, way back in chapter 25, is a mother and a father with two sons are not united together and valuing both in equal ways, are they? There is a, there is a break of relationship between Esau and Rebekah, which is seen in their favoritism for one against the other. And in a sense, that picture is there for us to pause and in just day-to-day practical experience to say, number one, stop and think. Parents, is there a danger? Is there a danger that I might be falling into that trap? Is there a danger that I might be expressing favoritism for one against the other? Is there a problem that I might be showing love to one rather than the other? I I know, of course, we all know, there are differences in siblings. There's nothing wrong with Esau loving, sorry, with Jacob, no, with Isaac. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with Isaac loving Esau's stew. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just fine. But if he doesn't love what Jacob does as well, if he doesn't love that aspect of this family life, if he doesn't express his love for the difference for the way in which there is different perspectives, different contributions which are made, what we actually see is family crisis. Do not fall into the trap of only looking at the picture and never using it as a springboard to look in the mirror as well. This is a warning. How, therefore, should we live today? The problem really is Isaac loves Esau more than he loves Jacob. Possibly. Or it might be that he loves himself more than he loves Rebecca. And the love for the food that is provided for him, which Esau feeds his need is an expression of a self-centered problem in Isaac. His love is not extended outwards. One of the ways in which we ensure that that contribution of family value is by that that commitment to self-sacrifice giving to the other. That value of the other. Rebecca, on the other hand, those of of you kind of working through the story and seeing where the springboards are, our first thought is, well, obviously Rebecca 
has in mind what, what we looked at last time where, or time before, where we saw the birth of these two and we saw that God said that there is going to be a blessing on Jacob rather than Esau. So isn't, isn't Rebecca just making sure that she works that out? Isn't that just what Rebecca is doing? Isn't she the faithful one? Isn't it easy the way we just jump into that desire to find the right and find the wrong? And yet, look at the way she's working it out. With deception. Jacob looks at this and he says, what, what if I go into my father and I say, right, um, give me your blessing. And he realizes, because I've got smooth skin, that he doesn't give a blessing to me, but rather a curse. What if, what if, and she says, let the curse be on me. Let the curse be on me. And, and, and the, the level of deception is, is equally a response, I would suggest, to the level of problem that we see in Isaac. If there is an imbalance there, there's an imbalance over here as well. In Rebecca's action, in the way that she is committed to a deception which tricks the one who she should most love. Isn't there a problem? And it, and it works both ways. It works on both sides of the coin here, but both, both for Rebecca and for Isaac. Isn't there a problem when Isaac can't be assured that he is giving the right blessing to the right son because Rebecca is there beside him, making sure that she is guiding him in the right way. Doesn't it show just a crisis, a problem, that she should be the one, in a sense, who is guiding and protecting, and yet she is the one who is caught up in a massive deception? And then we come to the two brothers, to Esau. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because immediately our thoughts are, well, Esau, he's just, he's, just, he's just getting stitched up every which way, isn't he, here? As this narrative unfolds. Last time, he goes in starving, and he goes and his brother Jacob tricks him. Give me the inheritance for a bowl of stew, because I'm, I'm famished. But that gives us a little hint, doesn't it? That gives us a little hint of where Esau's heart is. Because Esau comes into this, and I'll, I'll capture it like this. He wants the blessing, but he doesn't want the responsibility that goes with it. He wants it all for him, and not with what it costs. Because he's already, he's already sold what it costs. He's already sold the responsibility. He sold the inheritance for a bowl of stew. But now he wants the blessing. I don't know what's going on in the mind of, of, of Esau. Right, what's going on? It may, maybe he's thinking, yeah, I oh, messed up there, yeah. But it doesn't really matter. I'll get the blessing and everything will, everything will be fine. I'll get myself back into, the, back into the pound seats. I'll be all right. I'll get there. The reality is, 
Here we have, if a father we see a self-centered perspective, then we see a son with a self-centered perspective. And then we come to Jacob. The stay-at-home schemer. The one who just drops into the whole storyline. He's bothered. What? What is he bothered about? His mum says, look, this is what we're going to do. Well, go, and, go and get a goat, get the skin off, put it on your neck, put it on your wear resource clothes so that you smell like him. All, all of that kind of, let's just make sure we nail it. What's he bothered about? He's bothered about getting caught. <laughs> He's not bothered about the fact that it's wrong. He's bothered about getting caught. It opens up his heart, doesn't it? Look, look at this picture. Who's in the wrong? I think in a sense this family is a great example that when we look at that, our natural inclination is to find out who's in the right and who's in the wrong. The reality is in different ways, in different aspects, they're all in the wrong. They're all in the wrong. They're all a mess. They all exhibit... The reality of the human condition. We are fantastic, aren't we? We're really great at putting masks on. We can put masks on for the wider world with ease. In fact, if you meet somebody for a relatively short space of time, you can wear a great mask. If you spend a bit longer with people, you know, the people who you work with or the people in your road people you spend time with it's a bit you've got to work a bit harder at keeping the mask on haven't you but you know the people who we really can't keep the masks on continuously with those who are closest to us our family is where we see the reality exposed what we see here is four people in a family context, who are revealing the reality of our own condition. They are mirrors for us. Who's in the wrong? They're all in the wrong because they all have the same heart problem. They all have the same heart problem. They all exhibit what it is to be human in that failed, broken, self-centered drive. It's all a mess. So who's in the wrong? They're all. Secondly, I want to ask, whose blessing is it anyway? Whose blessing is it anyway? Look at the blessing uh, in verse 27. Isaac says to Jacob, come and kiss me. So he went and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, which are the clothes of Esau, he blessed him and said, I've got to be honest, I'm not thinking this is a great blessing. I'm not thinking this is something to be proud of. The smell of my son is like the smell of a field. (laughs) It's not a great thing on face value, is it? It's not, it's kind of, you know, he smells like outside. But look at what he's actually saying. 
The smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Remember, remember what's going on here. God has said to Abraham and to Isaac now, I am going to give you this land. And now he says, you smell like the land that God has blessed. In other words, he says, you smell like the promise of God. You see that? That's what he's saying to him. You you smell like the promise that God has given. I believe in a sense. I still believe what God has said. Except Except for this nagging problem that Esau, that Isaac should know better. Because Isaac should know that it is Jacob who is the one who God has promised. And Isaac is committed to the idea, he's committed to the idea that God has blessed this land. He's committed to the idea that God is creating a future But he's not committed to the idea of how God is delivering it. Do you see the way we saw last time? We can have faith in the big things, but we struggle with the little things. Here's exactly the same problem working its way out again. Isaac is effectively saying, I believe that God has blessed us into the future. But that's kind of a nebulous blessing, isn't it? It's kind of like that's the big picture blessing. But when it comes down to the delivery... I'm not comfortable with the idea that God is blessing X primogeniture. In other words, I'm not confident that God has decided to bless in a way which is counter the culture in which we live today. Now there's a thing for us to think about, isn't it? All of those of us who want to be really culturally relevant and engaged with the world that we live in today, and that is absolutely right, and there are moments when God says, I am determined to bless in ways which are counter the culture in which you live in today. Different, in ways which are not consistent, in ways which are a challenge Because the challenges are the moments where you truly show your faith in me. Where you say, I don't live according to the commitments of the world that we live in today. That was the call that Isaac was being called to make. Believe in something which is different to the commitments of the world today. Believe that God is going to deliver in a way which is different. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness. An abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. It is the most astounding blessing. It is, we're going to look, we're going to see how it unfolds. It is the most astounding prophetic blessing. But you know, within a few days, Jacob leaves with nothing. He's sent away because Esau is determined to kill him. Isn't that fascinating? That's how this blessing ends up in human terms. You see, 
You see, Isaac, you prayed when Rebecca couldn't conceive. And you prayed, and because you believed the promise of God in the future of your inheritance, you believed that God would deliver that, that, those children. And that's exactly what he did. And yet, even though you were given that promise that the younger one would be the inheritor, you've not followed through on that. You see, you've given a promise. You've given a blessing. You've given a blessing contrary to the blessing that God demanded that you give. And yet, remarkably, that's exactly the one who is blessed by God. Not because Rebecca was a fantastic deceiver or Jacob was a fantastic deceiver, but ultimately because the one who is in the right in this story is God himself. That's the storyline. Four people. Four people working it out. But the ultimate one who is in the right is God. In other words, Jacob and Rebekah, on the promise that was made at, their, at Jacob's birth, actually, they don't need the blessing of Isaac. Because ultimately, it's not Isaac's to give anyway. It's God's to give. It's God's to secure. It's God's to make the promises. And that is exactly the same for you and me. When we look at the idea that the only way in which we can be as secured in, in the promises of God is when we look to others, then we're in trouble. But when we look to God and believe His promises. So when we see... In this case, Isaac favoring Esau, potentially giving the blessing, a faith response says, I, I, I still believe that God is going to bless. And I can live with this. I can live with this seeming injustice because the long term is that I believe that God is going to bless. And Rebecca and Jacob should be able to sit back and say, I believe that God is going to bless. I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to twist. I don't have to intervene. In fact, the storyline of Jacob's life is a continuous process of trying to manipulate God to do it the way that he thinks God should do it. And we do that, don't we? We continue to try to manipulate things so that God does things our way. And the reality is that our human experience is God continually taking our finger off the control button, <laughs> encouraging us to, re to, to, to release that focus of it's got to be my way and ultimately saying, I trust you. <laughs> I trust you. I'm not quite sure how. This is the Abraham faith. Go and, go and slaughter Isaac, go and sacrifice him. So Abraham says, uh, does he say, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll find a way to get an alternative sacrifice uh, and name it Isaac in a way that 
that avoids the problem because God's promised Isaac is going to be the future. No, he works out that if God says, I'm going to deliver through him, then the only way that he can deliver is by raising him from the dead. And therefore, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to do that even though it sounds counterintuitive. And that is the storyline of the life of Jacob. What is going on in that storyline? Who is in the right? God is in the right. Because what is at stake, coming back to primogeniture, what's at stake? Security. A land. A nation. A people. You see, Isaac is thinking, the only way I can deliver that is by primogeniture. Making sure that it goes to Esau. And God says, I can deliver it because I can deliver salvation into the long term. My way. Ultimately, because it's not about a king on this earth. It's not about a land on this earth. It's about the establishment of a kingdom. Here's a little springboard for us. One of the reasons that we feel uncomfortable with this is because Esau gets nothing. In cultural terms, the firstborn, Esau, loses everything. And the secondborn gains everything. You know when we said, chapter 25, the narrator dropped a little seed in? Esau loved, uh, Isaac loved Esau's uh, stew, and Rebecca loved Jacob. Little seed dropped in. Dropped in here is more than a seed, actually. It's a great big, it's, it's a great big time bomb. It's about the idea that the firstborn loses everything so that the secondborn might gain everything. Where does that take us? If we've got sensitivity to the idea that what God is prepared to do is place a time bomb thousands of years before Jesus, thousands of years before Jesus, and say this... The firstborn loses everything and the secondborn gains everything. We should be ready for this idea. The firstborn loses everything. The firstborn loses everything. Jesus loses everything. So that his siblings might gain everything. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it astounding, this little preparation that God is placing in the story right back here? Why? Because it's all about creating security into the future. Culturally, we create security by giving it to the firstborn. And God says, no, I deliver it in a different way. I'll I'll tell you a story which tells a different way of dealing with it. Because I'm the one who delivers salvation. And I'm going to deliver my son, who becomes the firstborn who loses everything. The firstborn Esau becomes the cursed one. Wow. Jesus, the firstborn 
becomes the cursed one. So that those who follow him might gain everything. Isn't that that just exciting? Doesn't it make you think, well maybe, just maybe the Bible has got so much more to say to us. That God is prepared to take millennia to deliver salvation into this world. If you're a believer in Jesus, that is the most exciting thing to ponder on. How God has delivered your salvation into this world because he has taken millennia of steps to prepare us for just the right time when Jesus is born. If you are not a believer in Jesus at this moment in time... Can I encourage you that what we've done this afternoon is turned upside down some of the notions of what we assume the Bible is saying and suggesting that what it is pointing to is steps towards the greatest story, the greatest pattern of salvation that this world could ever conceive of. Our greatest works of art can take hours, days, weeks, months, years to create. The greatest beauty that God has created in this world has taken the history of the world to create. 